Hey, y'all. Sam Sanders here. It's been a minute. Today on the show, Kevin Young. He is the poetry editor of The New Yorker, and he is also the author of a new book. It is called Bunk, The Rise of Hoaxes, Humbug, Plagiarists, Phonies, Post-Facts, and Fake News. In many ways, now is the perfect time for such a book. It is all about fake news before there was such a thing as fake news. Kevin looks at hoaxes and post-facts all the way back to the 1800s, the time of, like, the circus showman P.T. Barnum. And then he goes all the way up to New York Times reporter Jason Blair, who famously just made up stories, like, in the early 2000s. It even looks at the rise of Donald Trump, who has had a few hoaxes himself. There are two kind of really big central questions in the book, uh, and they both are really great questions to ask right now. They are these. One, why do we believe things that are not true? And two, what does that teach us about ourselves? With that, let's begin. Here is Kevin Young and me. We talked a few weeks ago before the end of the year. Also, forgive us, we began this chat with Prince. We both love Prince. Enjoy. Favorite Prince song? Oh, Favorite Prince? I mean, you know, you're trying to trying to get me in trouble now. <laughs> you can have like two or three. It's fine. I can have two or three. See, that that seems like cheating. I mean, <laughs> you know, I think my favorite this week is uh-huh. If I Was Your Girlfriend. Mm. It's just uh, that song. You know, it, it has that beat where if you can't dance to If I Was Your Girlfriend. Then you just can't dance. Yeah, correct. <laughs> because it's not fast song, right? It's not like a upbeat number that you know you can dance to. It's like that, you know. Offbeat. I mean, is there a bad song on Sign of the Times? There isn't. Yeah, and he was, without even really trying to be, he was so transcendent. He was entirely unfettered, it felt like, by any bounds of gender or genre or even race, it felt like. He just did whatever the hell he wanted to do, and he was not going to be put in a box. But he also did that in a way that was, for most of his career at least, really accessible to all kinds of people. Yeah, I mean, I would argue that that was kind of a black stance in a way to be so flexible and so able to think about race in a complicated way. Yeah. And to say, you know, I'm black, but there is no limits on that. And in fact, that means, as I say in my book, The Gray, most of the universe is composed of dark matter. You know, and Prince <laughs> seemed to understand that well and, and, and you know, say that that meant he was an inheritor to all these different traditions and he could try them out and song to song or even line to line. Yeah, yeah. Do you know where you were when he died or like when you heard that he died? Yeah, I remember I remember a lot of things about that um week. You know, it felt like he he died and then it was just like unfolding and he had been sick the week before we knew and mm-hmm. I had a one of my good friends had been at his very final show um at the Fox Theater in Atlanta, mm. and um, which is where I had seen him last. Okay, and so um, he he can barely speak about that show, which of course we didn't necessarily know at the time was his last show. Yeah. But he speaks of as even different from the early. He played two shows that night, and the earlier show was kind of a more traditional show, and the second show he was you know at the piano a lot of it, which I've seen him do before, mm-hmm. and uh, I know it was a special night and and a haunting one. Yeah, yeah. 
It's so funny. The day that he died, we had to tape a, an episode of a podcast I hosted, and we gave him a shout-out there. And I spent the rest of the day in the newsroom kind of just processing that. But I remember I had a Prince party either the weekend of his death or the weekend after, and I wanted my friends to come together and play a bunch of Prince music, drink purple punch, basically, <laughs> and just dance to Prince. And All I right. remember about halfway through the party, the new Beyonce album dropped. And then we stopped to watch Lemonade. And hmm. then went back to dancing to Prince, and I was like, "Huh?" And I—that's I, a moment. I know it was such a moment, and I don't have an answer to the question yet. But I wonder, like, who takes up his mantle? I mean, we already know that Beyonce is one of the best performers of our time, but Prince was so much more than just a performer. And well, I, and people forgot he was a great performer. Oh, exactly. You know, I remember in the '80s, people would literally have arguments over the best guitarist. He was the best be guitarist like, <laughs> since freaking Hendrix. They'd be Eddie Van Halen. No, you know? <laughs> they were just doing arpeggios. They were doing. They, they, and, and like, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Well, and that I think now famous thing at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame where he comes. And he on. outplayed everybody. <laughs> and I, I think, I think because those things came somewhat easy to him he made it look easier than of course it is but also even for himself i think he was like i want to sing in a weird voice uh, electronically altered Mm -hmm. you know before many people did that and um i want to make that a whole record yeah yeah i want to talk about the book for a little bit it is called bunk the rise of hoaxes humbug plagiarists phonies post facts and fake news what in the world made you want to write a book about hoaxes well, I mean, they're kind of fascinating, aren't they? Yeah. They're, um, you know, these things that tell us a lot about ourselves, mainly because they're not true. And often what it tells us about is, I found in writing the book, race, you know, and the ways mm. that race is predicated on elements of hoaxing, um, but also that the hoax itself often makes use of race, whether that goes back from P.T. Barnum's time, who exhibited folks of uh, who he would render exotic or different kinds of folks, and some of that we can talk about more. But then also, you know, up into the present day where, you know, you'd think that people would stop imitating, I don't know, black people or Native American folk, um, but people are still out there doing that. And yeah. so I try to trace the ways that yeah. this evolved and changed, but... Um, you know, still with us. Well, even if you think about like the biggest hoax, um, perhaps one of the biggest hoaxes of this decade was birtherism, yeah. which was steeped so strongly in race. And when we all, I think, as a country and culture look back on that, I just feel like as a country, at some point, we got to say, how do we let that happen? Right. Or like, why do we want to let it happen? You know? Yeah, no, that's very much what my book is about. And, you know, what the kind of, um, I don't know if it's disheartening or heartening to realize that I had been writing this book for past six years and a lot of the new developments after I had mostly finished it, I would have to just add a sentence or a line Mm. or, oh, like this too. Because Mm. a lot of these patterns, I think, have been emerging over time. And, you know, I think I was early to say, hey, look, it's getting worse and we're in a kind of bad patch right now. Not only are the hoaxes more frequent, and I, I think they're also more intense, but also that they're, they're generally negative. They're generally figures of horror, mm-hmm. something like Pizzagate, where you have uh, folks creating a whole fake story about a pizza place that has in its basement a sex ring, and, you know, it's just the worst possible things you can imagine. Yeah. And I was just in D.C. and happened to go in there, and um, 
you it's know, a comet pizza. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's actually it's decent. It's, it's a, a great nice place. place. <laughs> yeah. Right. And so why do we believe the worst about each other or the worst about these stories? That's what yeah. uh, continues to wake me up at night. Well, and then also, you know, part of your book kind of traces different types of hoaxes over American history and the role that they served at different points. There was a type of hoax that you describe as humbug, and it's this form of fakery that wasn't so much meant to deceive, but to like fill whoever saw it with wonder and have you appreciate the production of this thing. And there was always kind of a wink and a nod with it. The age of hoax that I feel we're in now, there is no wink, there is no nod, there is a balled up fist. <laughs> That's well put. Yeah, I mean, I very much think that that wonder, even if it had its own problems, um, has mostly disappeared. And, and now hmm. someone, you know, uh, recently over the summer, a security guard accidentally shot himself and he blamed a black man. Mm-hmm. But each of these cases get a little bit, people get a little more skeptical and a little more quick to kind of um, see through these poor attempts at hoaxing. But it also shows the ways that the hoaxes you know, as you said, like a balled up fist, but also that um, it's about life and death. You know, these things that are kind of seem jokey on one hand also are quite serious. Huh. Yeah. Why explain for our listeners why you think the concept of race is so tied up in the concept of what a hoax is and how they work? Well, I came to realize that the very term hoax which emerges in the middle of the 18th century and the modern sense of race both grew up around the same time. Hmm. And, you know, that kind of isn't an accident. And Mm -hmm. I think that the ways that, say, P.T. Barnum exhibited a woman named Joyce Heth, who's who he claimed was uh, George Washington's nursemaid, which would have made her 161 years old, (laughs) which he advertised. And, you know, she was a black woman. He probably enslaved her. Um, We're we're not totally sure. But... When she died, he then, which was shortly after he started showing her, and she was hugely popular. It put Barnum on the map and made his American Museum, which was part of his, um, you know, growing empire. Uh-huh. Then by the end of Barnum's career, at the end of the uh, 19th century, he's showing a figure he called, what is it? Question mark. Uh. And it was a black man who he dressed up in like a furry costume. But he pitched this figure as the missing link in evolution. And it was amazing to see the way that he was so sophisticated about knowing what an audience wanted, even if they didn't know what they wanted. Yeah. And both of those are predicated upon race. Um, Which you describe as the biggest hoax, perhaps. Yeah. I mean, race is also a fake thing pretending to be real. Hmm. And it has these deadly effects, um, as we see on the news or um, in our lives. You know, I think one of the things I came to realize is that our notion of sort of progress isn't a really useful one always because I think we tend to think, oh, you know, race got better at the beginning. But in Barnum's case, just these two examples, it gets more and more restrictive and more and more worse. I mean, Joyce Heff was a lot of things, but she wasn't an it. And this itness, I think, sort of pervades uh, aspects of the hoax over the last century. Mm. It's so interesting, you know, hearing you tell these stories about the black people Barnum used as props for these hoaxes. I wanted to just like grab those black folks by the shoulders and shake them and be like, don't do it. Don't go <laughs> well, to one, Barnum Circus. <laughs> one was enslaved, of course. And the yeah, other one, yeah. I mean, William Johnson is a fascinating figure, the, the gentleman who uh, was the original what is it as he was billed the rest of his life because he uh, had a showbiz career that lasted 60 more years at least. 
And he uh, was seen by, it's estimated to be about 100 million people, which is just unbelievable. And his sort of cultural uh, influence is large. And I sort of, as much as I want to, you know, as you say, shake folks, I also want to like honor that and and think Mm. about what does that mean to have him as his presence. And, you know, I discovered some other things about him that even people who champion him as a figure don't really get to. So, you know, I think if you read the book, you can see the ways that he has a kind of honorific role, at least in my telling. Okay, taking a quick break here. When we come back, one of my favorite hoaxes from Kevin's book. You got to hear it to believe it. Seriously. BRB. Support for It's Been a Minute and the following message come from ZipRecruiter. A new year has begun. And if you're setting new goals for your business, you need the right people on your team. ZipRecruiter has transformed how you find them. ZipRecruiter posts your job to over 100 job sites with just one click. Then they actively look for the most qualified candidate and invite them to apply. That's why 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. Try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com minute. How much would you pay to avoid morning traffic? Why are plane tickets to Boise so expensive? I'm Cardiff Garcia, co-host of The Indicator. In every episode, we take on a new unexpected idea to help you make sense of the day's news. Listen every afternoon on NPR One or wherever you get your podcasts. I want to talk about one particular hoax that I just found so fascinating. This is the story of a newspaper called The Sun, mm-hmm. who that in 1835 convinced everybody that men had walked on the moon, got to the moon and discovered things like men with bat wings and unicorns and bipedal beavers. And it wasn't just that, that The Sun ran this story. Everyone else picked it up. Yeah, I it mean, just t- seems crazy. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, as I say in the book, I mean, do, do we remember the balloon boy hoax from a few years ago? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which, right? You know, I it was like okay. this. <laughs> it's amazing how quick these things can go viral, um, and, and the, even and, then, yeah, like the, the idea that things were going viral before the internet. People forget <laughs> that. Oh yeah, I yeah. mean, gossip and news uh, weren't invented uh, recently. Exactly. You know, I think what's interesting is the way the Sun, uh, as a paper, and the penny press that it was part of as a broader phenomenon, became quite powerful because of this hoax. It wasn't simply that people all believed it, but it was something a point of contention. People could argue about it. They could think about it together. And um, it became a point of great interest. Yeah, People kind of viewed humbug the way we kind of look at reality shows. You know, we see them and we know they're kind of fake. We yeah. know they're kind of real. We're yeah. trying to judge them and we have, you know, stronger or weaker tolerance for their... Unreality. I mean, I like them. I think they can be quite enjoyable. Which one's your favorite? Well, you know, I've been known to tweet about The Bachelor um, and The Bachelorette. Yes, yes. <laughs> but, I, you know, I think, again, this is a place where you see race and gender mm-hmm. and politics uh, in, the, in the sense of power play out. I mean, it's really instructive. And I think very much Barnum's hoaxes answered the same need. Yeah. You know, it's funny thinking about this hoax with the sun. They go on to ultimately describe this fake story about a moon landing. They say they meant it to be a respite from slavery. Whoa. And this is after they paint some really crude racial stereotypes in the hoax itself. What is up with that? (laughs) Well, I think people are are trying to work it out. You know, I mean, 
I think that there were a lot of – there's the author of the hoax who was pretty mum on why the hoax was started. And, you know, it's unclear reading it. Is it a satire about these types and stereotypes or is it um, sort of playing into them? You know, it's hard to know. And I think that's why the hoax worked. You know, I think it worked because – it gave us a sense of mystery. It gave us a sense of mastery and a sense of power. And all those things, I think, play into the hoax. But they also play into race, too, and the ways that people would go to shows like Barnum's. And I don't mean only to uh, point out Barnum because there are lots of other hoaxes through that time and throughout history. But I think he was the most successful at seeing yeah. what people needed and, and sustaining it over time. Yeah. With this story in the sun that came to consume all of American media for a while— in what I would say is a bad way, because it was a fake story. Like, we see the same things happening now. Was there any lesson that you found in researching your book and that story that could be applied to folks like myself now trying to do journalism and not get sucked into fake news? It's a great question. I mean, I think that there's a lot we can do. I mean, there's our responsibility, I think, as audience members, and that's one of the things I mainly think about. But I also think, and I, I saw uh, someone, I think it was Wes Lowry, tweet about this and say, like, journalists maybe need to do a better job of saying, like, what sources are, how they do their job, mm. how they do reporting. Because I think many people don't understand. And they say, well, this story is fake because, you know, who cares? It's just hearsay. Well, you know, they don't publish hearsay, a re- reputable yeah. journalist. And even when they have an unnamed source, they've talked to five or six people to confirm the unnamed Correct. source. But no one gets that when they just read the article, you know? (laughs) Well, and I feel that, you know, in terms of research, you know, um, it was really important for me to read a lot of everything I could. And you sure did. (laughs) I'm going to just pause really quick. I have never seen a longer section of footnotes and references in a book. You also have an annotated bibliography at the end of this book. Well, you did the work. (laughs) Well, you can't have a book about fakery and have, you know, (laughs) or plagiarism is in there too, like, you know, and and just never source. But it's amazing how many books I would read, like books about hoaxes, not necessarily the hoax books, Mm -hmm. that, um, you know, failed to to have a single source. And I I thought that there was a way in which um, a lot of them kind of reproduced the conditions that you saw. And I really strove not to do that and make, make it something that thought a lot about not just what hoaxes seem to be about, because people often talk about them as, well, it's this blurry line between fact and fiction, which I don't think exists. I mean, most people can know the difference, you know. It's Were you there or fiction. not there? Exactly. <laughs> and um, th- then at the same time, you know, talk about what they're really about. And, you know, talk about us. Um, I think that's important. Um, I think that public editors and, and um Ombudsman, um, Ombudsman, Ombuds people. <laughs> yes, exactly. Let's do that. Yeah, let's call it that. Um, who, you know, review how f- folks report and talk publicly and, and, and transparently are so important. And, you know, you saw that the Times got rid of theirs at one point. I mean, it's just I, I start to un- not understand because that was created in the wake of the Jason Blair, mm. um, you know, scandal, hoaxing. This was the young and upcoming journalist who basically every story he wrote was fake. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he would like report on things and from you know far away and actually still be in the building just upstairs. Or <laughs> LOL. He'd be in Brooklyn, you know. <laughs> and, 
you know, what is important to note is the people who caught him, and there were warning signs along the way, yeah. people who caught him were journalists. You know, mm-hmm. I feel like journalists don't want that. They police and, and think about and have concerns about sources and other people's integrity too. And it's important to keep that in mind. I mean, because sometimes people say to me, oh, but the internet is the internet to blame. And the internet is something we made. You know, it's a tool. Yeah. And the internet's often what catches these internet hoaxes. That's so true. we have to kind of step back and say, well, are we doing a good job? And I think libraries are, and are one place that this happens, teaching people what a source is, yeah. teaching people what good sources are. And maybe you need more than one, you know? You might not need to get your information from one dubious place on the internet, but maybe a lot of different sources and think about what it means to get these accounts and and points of view. Yeah. You know, also just hearing you talk right now, I think that some of the some of the economy for hoax media and hoax stories is exacerbated by this constant competition between newsrooms. We're all competing for the most clicks and the most ubiquity and the most notoriety. Nothing about the current state of journalism that I'm in now feels in any way extremely collaborative across newsrooms. Well, and it's harder, I do think, because of our cycle so fast. You hear a story in the morning and it might have changed utterly mm-hmm. by the afternoon, but we don't often have the, you know, our lives are busy too. And so we don't always have the time to check back in. Oh, was No that... one reads the correction. <laughs> well, I think, I think it's all the more important. Yeah. But I think the the larger thing, stepping back, my concern isn't just the cycles of news. It's the ways that these hoaxes prey on our deep divisions, Mm. you know, and fake news uh, is very aware of that, Mm -hmm. whether it's the bots that were seemingly created by Russians that influenced the election that, you know, targeted specific bits of news and that pretended to be, say, radical black groups. Um, these are actual things that should trouble us all because they exploit notions of our system of belief, which is a free and open democracy and, and you know, that people are equal. And they're sort of trying to get in there and exploit doubts and, and divisions. And, you know, I, that really worries me. Um, and the hoax regularly goes to that, I came to realize and trace in the book. Yeah. One of the things that I took with me most in prepping for this interview, um, I ended up trying to see whatever happened to that guy behind the gay girl in Damascus story. This was the blogger, approaching middle-aged, married white man who pretended to be a lesbian in Syria uh, during the Arab Spring. (laughs) He got caught. But I looked him up. Now, at least last that I could see online, he's teaching at Morehouse which I just found fascinating. And and the question I asked myself with all of this, it's like when you have people perpetrating these bad hoaxes, you know, not the humbug, not the wonderment, just like lies, when do we get to forgive them and should we? It's a great question. Um, I think the further away we are often, uh, you know, the easier it can be for people. I think that, you know, apologizing and, and being clear makes folks, it seems somehow easier. Hmm. But, I, but then I think about someone like Lance Armstrong, who hoaxed all of us, right? Yeah, and it's kind of just like, sit down, <laughs> never come back. Sit down. <laughs> What's it mean? You know, yeah. like for years, and he destroyed people's lives and, and chased them out of industries and out of cycling. And, you know, 
the damage to the idea of cycling, it's a tough one. You know, I, I think I struggle with it and think about it in the book. One more quick break here. In a moment, some similarities between Donald Trump and P.T. Barnum. Yes. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Discover. The traditional first anniversary gift is paper. Most couples aren't gifting each other stationery, but Discover is following this anniversary tradition for its new card members. At the end of your first year, Discover will match all the cash back you earn dollar for dollar. No caps and no cash. That's a paper anniversary gift in the form of a cash back bonus. Learn more at discover.com slash match. Cashback match offer only for new card members. Limitations apply. Hello, just dropping in to remind you about Here and Now. We cover the day's most essential news with context so you know the why and what's next. A fast-paced snapshot of the world every day. Listen to Here and Now on NPR One or wherever you listen to podcasts. I want to talk about you for a bit. Okay. One thing I noticed about your history is that you were... Uh, this black man who existed in some pretty white spaces. You were born in Nebraska. You went to Harvard. You spent some time at Stanford and Brown. You're now the poetry editor at The New Yorker. Uh, Like, how does your personal experience being a black face, often in majority white spaces, how does that affect the writer and researcher that you are? That's a big question. I know. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) All of my career in one moment. Um, You know, I think that uh, I grew up with my parents both coming from Louisiana Mm -hmm. and um, going what we call home still. Those are all black spaces. Where in Louisiana? Southern and northern Louisiana. Okay. um, Both parts. I guess there's New Orleans, too, for people. Um, But we never went there. We would just go to my family's houses or, you know, where they were. And in southern Louisiana, near Opelousas, we've been in that part of Louisiana for about 200 years. And so to me, part of the point of sort of my writing isn't that there's like the space that is white. You know, I don't know what those spaces are. And coming from spaces that were black and uh, black owned, as it were, and just black based, that was such an important gestation. And when I came to understand, say, someone like Zora Neale Hurston, who grew up in an all-black town, Eatonville, Florida, it really helped me understand what that did for you. And you can go anywhere, you know, and, and you're still carrying that with you to me. And so these spaces that you speak of, they often have, even Kansas, where I uh, went to high school, you know, that's where Langston Hughes lived, and that's where Gwendolyn Brooks was born. And to me, that was important. Um, and help me think about the ways that the American experience, which I think often gets thought of, and even say the Southern experience as white, were actually complicated mm. black spaces, you know, a little like Twitter, black Twitter, you know, I, I write about sometimes and um, people start be like, is there a separate Twitter, <laughs> you know? It's like, but it's still part of Twitter. <laughs> we, we, see, we still see the white Twitter too. So I think that that's what I would sort of have us think about. Like, well, maybe we should think about Black Harvard or, you mm-hmm. know, uh, I think all these spaces mm-hmm. get changed by the people who are in them and, and hopefully by me uh, in some cases. But I, I very much think that we're in this really interesting renaissance and black letters and Hmm. Uh, you see it in, you know, everyone from Jesmyn Ward, who's won the National Book Award twice, you know, and I yeah. th- 
think uh, I try to describe to people how terrific her writing is. And, you know, my best sort of analogy is she's our Toni Morrison. And then you have people like journalists, like Coates or uh, Roxane Gay, who are really pushing the envelope of nonfiction and also fiction and Roxane Gay's case. And, you know, I think you see black folks writing comics, you know, <laughs> like yeah. what an exciting moment. And, and poetry is, I think, led the way in this and um, I think is really important. Yeah. Yeah. You know, speaking of changing the spaces you're in, I love this quote that you had about recently uh, becoming the poetry editor for The New Yorker. You said at one point, even if we're all published in The New Yorker, would that be the point? You're missing the point if it's a new driver driving the same old truck. What I is the? A, I think it's an old quote of mine. Uh, no quote. I'm sorry. I take it back. <laughs> I yeah. think I said that yes. once upon a time. Okay. And so but, I, would have I mean, never so like, even been thinking about being yeah. a poetry editor. But now that you are, mm-hmm. what's the old truck? <laughs> are you looking for a new one, and what does it look like? <laughs> I don't know if I would characterize it as a truck. Um, okay. I, I think that, you know, to me what's been interesting is to see the ways that I think the New Yorker had already responded to the Renaissance in poetry. And I mean, you know, all poetry. I, I think the poetry has become really exciting there. Um, it's certainly where I turned to first and did so before I was editor. Um, I know that as a person sending in poems, I often felt like they zeroed in on the poems that were the most important to me and Hmm. and spoke to, say, the death of my father or the birth of my son, which were things that were, you know, deeply about race and culture, but also about, you know, life and death, you know. And so I, I really think that if the ways that I hope I can continue that, because I've just been there a month, are ways to think about, you know, the the importance of poetry, the ways that people are writing important work that addresses some of these things. And one of these things is the diversity of American poetry. It's really rich right now. And to ignore that, which I don't think they have, um, but to sort of recognize that, I should say, is the way to kind of keep ahead of things and, and keep, I guess, the truck moving. Yeah. I want to circle back to hoaxes and some parallels with today. In the book, you spent some time comparing Donald Trump to P.T. Barnum. Explain to me some of the parallels you saw there. Well, I think Barnum is a fascinating figure. And as I sort of discussed a little bit, you know, he really was the person who sort of took like the sideshow, which was a figure of interest for many people and always popular. And he kind of codified it. He took the sideshow sort of indoors into what was then called a museum in the, in the same way he sort of changed what we know of as the circus, like Barnum and Bailey Circus. So he, he was a showman. He uh, was a business person. He went bankrupt, uh, I think, three times. Um, mm. His American Museum caught fire twice and burned to the ground. And he was constantly reinventing himself and rebuilding. Do you think it caught fire by accident? <laughs> I do, okay. I do. Um, but I, I also think that in some ways that you know, it's not an accident that Trump came out of reality shows in some mm. sense. And I, I think that the reality show, a little like I was talking about before, as this place where reality is kind of contested and it's largely fake, really plays into this kind of showman appeal. And um, I was interested in the ways that Trump kind of connects to that and I think is able to think about the news cycle and, and sometimes outthink it. Mm. You know, with Trump and Barnum, 
Barnum is someone who seemed to know exactly what he was doing. And the big question with Trump or the critique of Trump is that maybe there isn't actually a grand strategy with him. Maybe he is just being really, really, really impulsive and it just works for the moment and he's in the right place at the right time. Yeah, I'm not sure. Um, you know, I, I'm i not sure even that that's the question I would ask. Okay. I mean, yeah. you know, as I say in the book, thinking about hoaxes more generally, you know, the true measure of the hoax isn't intent but harm. You know, uh. it, how does it affect us? How does it yeah. damage us? And some of the damage is to the idea of the truth. And I think that's really probably the scariest thing. But what I came to understand is also we've done damage to the idea of the imagination and the way that mm. things that we make up can really influence us and help us and, and change us, you know. And the hoax kind of denies both. It denies the truth and it denies the fact that art is great and it can make us, you know, take us out of ourselves and bring us back changed. And something like Get Out, that movie, which I think, you know, I love that Jordan Peele uh, tweeted recently. He said, uh, Get Out is a documentary, <laughs> which is a funny way to put it. Yeah. But I think he's getting us to think about the ways that you know art can really speak to us and have real effects. And feel real. I'm thinking of this essay that was in The New Yorker last week. Cat Person? Oh, yeah. I haven't read that yet. Got to read I, it. I, well, it's, it's a short fiction. story. It's, it's a short, a short story. story. It's not a piece that you of fiction. Essay, but... and, and, and like, yeah, it's like everyone treated it like it was a personal essay. And it's not... And, I even, in my question to you, <laughs> mischaracterized it. Right. Because so many lines are just blurry right now. Right, right. And um, I think that's a really interesting point. You know, that's where we're at. We maybe need to step back and say, well, you know, this was a story. And guess what? A story can be just as powerful a testimony as anything else. Yeah. Yeah. But we're in a bad patch of it. I mean, there's this era of fake news. And one of the things that I would think about is is it that the news is fake or the fake news is now the thing we throw around, you know? And, uh. and has fake news become the thing that people use to say news they don't like? Because it's that on one hand, for sure. You know, people say the fake news about things that are absolutely provably true. Um, but then at the same time, there is this this use of technology. And I think some of these changes often are tied to technology mm-hmm. to to promote stories that aren't true and that also provably false. And how do we discern between these two states? Yeah. It's funny. When I hear fake news now, what I really hear people saying usually is, I don't have to believe what I don't want to believe. Yeah. And as soon as someone says fake news, that's my question. What are you trying to not believe? It's <laughs> a great question. And, and my book, Bunk, is trying to think about, you know, not just why we deceive, but why we do believe what we believe. Yeah. You know, and some of this belief is is now, as you said, a rejection of something else. And again, I think that the odd truth is that um, the stance of, oh, everything's fake or that's just fake, you know how you know the media is say, it only lets you be fooled more, you know? Um, and so that's what we want to avoid, I think. Yeah, yeah. It's hard to make predictions, but... Let's do it. Let's do it. Where do we <laughs> no, go no. from this period of hoax culture? What's next for us? Um, you know, I... I I, one of the reasons I almost had to finish the book is because I realized that I would I could just keep changing it daily, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. or certainly weekly. Um, 
so I think we have to sort of recognize the pattern of the hoax yeah. and think about the ways it works. And, and, you know, sometimes when we hear a story that just sounds a little too neat and a little too perfect, we have to step back. But we also have to not lose hope and not become cynical because I think as you see with the pieces that have exposed sexual assault and sexual harassment in many industries, I think that journalism still has this important role and, and still can affect real change. And, and, you know, articulate in most of these cases things that people, uh, turns out, in these various industries knew of. I, certainly there are things that you hear that suddenly get proven true. And, and, you know, I think it's important that role be maintained and, and worked at. So I, I'm hoping that there's more of that. Yeah. Hey, well, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Take care. Be good. All right. Kevin Young, his book is called Bunk, The Rise of Hoaxes, Humbug, Plagiarists, Phonies, Post Facts, and Fake News. Also, listeners, as always, share with me the best thing that happened to you all week for our Friday wrap. Uh, record yourself at any time throughout the week. Send the file to me at any time throughout the week. The email address is samsanders at npr.org. All right? All right. Thank you for listening. I'm Sam Sanders. Talk soon.